Hey, well, thank you so much uh, as Sailorville Church for uh, partnership with Bethesda Outreach over the years. You folks support um, Heather Rumley uh, as a missionary, and Heather has been, she just celebrated her 10th uh, year anniversary uh, with Bethesda Outreach as a teacher at our school. The video that you just saw is, uh, promotes our 2017 Christmas offering, uh, which is this year for our school hall. Uh, it's not Bethesda Outreach Christian School. It's Bethesda Outreach Ministry that we have 43 orphans in our care uh, in seven different families. And the school is on our property, and the school is an important part of our uh, approach toward intentional ministry. It increases our footprint of reaching orphans uh, incredibly. Uh, around 60 to 70 percent of the currently 200 students in our school are orphan and vulnerable children themselves from the surrounding community. And then it also services, obviously, uh, the children in our care. So thank you so much for partnering with us regarding Heather and her ministry. Uh, just recently, we met uh, Tanner Archer, and uh, Tanner came over. Uh, I called him up after we saw, I think this past summer, some of you may remember, Johanna was here uh, uh, from Bethesda along with Heather and Tanya. And uh, I saw that video that was produced of, of, of um, Johanna's uh, testimony. And we, boy, we, thank you, we've used that a ton. Uh, in, in spreading that around, and so I asked some question. Who in the world put that thing together? So I called Tanner. Tanner, I said, Tanner, would you come over? And nah, I can't. A couple, about a week later, he says maybe, and then ultimately he came. And uh, he spent about a week with us in October over at Bethesda. Helped us put this video. He did put this video together, and is in the process of helping us with some others. So thank you for uh, lending us. Uh, Tanner and his skills. Thank you to his wife and family as well. Any, anybody else in the room who's been to Bethesda? There have been a number of folks who've traveled from Iowa over the years. Yeah. Well, thank you. You, you, you left a mark, and we appreciate your ministry there in, in so many ways. Uh, let me just do a, a, a quick report, a quick update on the ministry, uh, three quick thoughts, and then I, wanna, I want to turn our attention toward God's Word. As a ministry, we're 17 years old. Bethesda started in 2000 at the height of the AIDS pandemic as it comes down through uh, sub-Sahara Africa. Um, South Africa is two times geographically, two times the size of the state of Texas, four million orphans. Numbers are, are challenging, I know, but four million is a number that they use over there. Um, in America today, today's Orphan Sunday, by the way, and so very, very appropriate uh, that, that we talk about this subject. But in America today, there's 428,000 children in our foster care system. All right. Now, you, you know what it takes to get into the foster care system. That, it, there's bad things that have to happen before you enter the system. A judge, you actually, whether you're two weeks old or uh, 16 years old, a judge has to read about you, uh, doesn't have to see you, but has to read about you. And a lot of things have to happen before you get put into the system. 428,000. I got that off, uh, off one of my favorite orphan care websites just on Friday. Well, South Africa is dealing with 4 million and so as a country, it's appropriate to come alongside the churches in South Africa and give them help. And that's what some missionaries did uh, back in those days. After 17 years, though, where there, are, there are sort of three directions that we're headed and that I've been tasked with as executive director. If I'm still executive director in three years, then I haven't done my job. 
one of the jobs is to transition leadership over to South Africans. And so I'm in the midst of training a South African man to be the executive director for Bethesda Outreach. It's 17 years is long enough for Americans to run a ministry in another country. And, and for the other country to stop listening to Americans as if they have all the answers. And so we're working hard to transition the leadership and the ownership of Bethesda Outreach to where South Africans are in the driver's seat and Americans are still partnering. Very important to have the partnership, but they're in the passenger seat. A second area that I'm at work and we're, we're, uh, we're, we're growing in as a ministry is self-sustainability. That there is a that there, right now, uh, all of the finances for the operation of Bethesda Outreach Ministry, about 23% comes from the states as far as operations. A lot more comes as it relates to capital outlay, and that's what this school building offering is, is that we can help build this school. If we can, if we can help our, our South African churches with the capital outlay to put the building up, then the school can actually be a, 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 a ministry that helps the sustainability of our orphan care ministry. We can actually make money on the school. I know that sounds weird in America that you would actually find a Christian school profitable. But in South Africa, it's, it, is, it is a possibility, at least the way that, that we have it structured. So we're working on self-sustainability and increasing the footprint of, of our orphan care ministry through our Christian school. Thirdly, we're developing community homes. We found out that over these years, as we pay parents, we have seven homes where there are South African parents. Each home has uh, anywhere from seven to ten orphan children. And we're finding after 17 years of that, while it's a good model... It, it, it is gospel-centered, it is family-focused, uh, it is church-driven. It's a good model, it's not the best. And we're trying to tweak our model to where we could even have some community homes. Part of our dream is that even some American churches would come alongside and say, if you can find a South African family, 40-something percent rate of unemployment over there, if you can find an African family willing to take uh, South African orphans and children, and you can put them near a, a church in a community, uh, let's... let's See if we can't match up uh, an American church with that South African church and build some kind of a partnership so that this family can be resourced. Things like that. The, the, probably the, uh, what we're most excited, if, if we're going to tell you just one story about what, what we're excited about at Bethesda, it would be uh, a young lady named Bu Yi, B-U-Y-I. In October when we were there, uh, I, I travel there about three times a year for two weeks each time. Uh, the people over there can run Bethesda. They're just an excellent staff. They do a wonderful job. Um, I slow things down when I go over. Buyi is about 12 years old. She came to us and, and became a, into one of our families when she was uh, probably eight or nine years old. Her granny, she, had, her, she has no other family, her granny brought her and she was wearing uh, around her wrist some, some beads and then around her waist some beads. And the granny, as she dropped Buyi off at Bethesda, uh, explained that these are from our local witch doctor to protect her from the spirits at Bethesda. Uh, apparently Bethesda has a reputation for being spiritual. And so... I was at dinner at Buyi's house in October. Her mom and dad had us over for dinner, and we got through with the meal. I noticed Buyi stood up and walked out into the kitchen to start doing the dishes. I excused myself. I go out to the kitchen to help her do the dishes. Didn't have my hands in the dishwater for two minutes, and Buyi looks up at me and says, Papa Don, what do you think about being born again? And well, wow, Buyi, what a great question. And for 30 minutes, God gave me the grace to not talk like an old white pastor 
and to be a friend to Bu Yi and just keep asking her questions. Why do you want to know? What do you think about being born again? She said, well, Papa Don, what about all those people in Afghanistan? Papa Don, what about the Jews? They have the same Bible, but they don't believe in Jesus, do they? And what about this and what about that? And we just, just incredible. That's the heartbeat. Because what was behind that was that Bu Yi is in a family with a mom and dad who opened the Bible with Bu Yi and her siblings and her <laughs> about nine other kids in the home regularly opening up the Bible with this, this girl. She goes to our school where she constantly hears about the gospel, and she goes to a good church where she's a part of a class and a group that hears about Jesus. And so we're thrilled at the opportunity just to report to you that uh, while we're a, we're a, a our, our ministry is limited, it's expanding, but we're trying, we're trying to answer the question, is something better than nothing? We're trying to answer that question in orphan care it is sometimes, but there's somebody has to stop and say what you guys did tonight. If God took us as orphans and strangers and adopted us into his family with full privileges and rights as sons and daughters, then that's probably ought to be our target. That there's always going to be a need for putting a roof over their heads. There's always going to be a need just to feed them and to put somebody babysitting them. But that's, we can't stop there. And we have to move on uh, to excellence that's represented in the scriptures. This evening, I'd like to just point your, th your attention to the scriptures. We, we've, I think we've heard the verse now two times this evening. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Let me give you a little quiz. Uh, the quiz is this. Here's the question. Name three of the top characteristics that you think are necessary for, to define a person who is genuinely godly. I mean a person who is really in love with God and a follower of God. What would the top three characteristics be? Well, when you come to these verses, James uh, does that. Verse 26, he says, godliness is about keeping your mouth under control. You say, well, I don't know if I like that one, but it's there. Verse 26, you're going to control your tongue. If you really are following God, you're going to be self, have some self-discipline because it's spiritual-induced. Secondly, at the end of verse 27, he says, you're going to be holy. You're going to keep yourself unspotted from the world. Now, so far, most of us church rats who have sort of grown up in this environment were saying, amen, yeah, that's good. A real godly person is going to have some measure of control of their tongue and is going to be interested in having a holy lifestyle. But then James just sort of makes us really nervous when he said, but the third one is equal with, or at least parallel to, I'm not ashamed to say it, with watching out for how you talk and living a holy life, a godly person visits the widows and the orphans in their affliction. Now, James isn't saying everything about godliness in these, in these verses. He's not trying to be comprehensive in it, but he is saying one thing. That if you claim to know God and you don't have any kind of connection with weak, vulnerable, disenfranchised people, then your understanding of God is absurd. It just doesn't fit. That's, that's harsh, isn't it? But I don't think I just said it any more harshly than verses 26 and 27 of James 1. If you're genuinely godly then you will know that the heart of the Father is, as Psalm 68 says, he flies across the desert. Worship him, sing to him. His name is the Lord. He flies across the desert 
Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is he in his holy habitation. He puts the oppressed in homes. He puts the lonely, the solitary in homes. God wants to be known by the name of the fatherless. And so the word visit is, is the word I want to just, I want to look at, look with you. If you have your Bibles and you want to look at Luke 7, feel free to. But let me just, we want to go back to Luke 7. Luke 7 is the story of Jesus. He comes to the town of Nain. It says he sees a dead man being carried out of Nain. He then sees the mother of the dead man, who then Luke in his narration describes for us, the mother is a widow and the dead man is her only son. It then says that Jesus had compassion on them. He saw, he saw a little more, he had compassion, and he walks over and he touches, you remember the story, he touches, the Bible says, the beer. Uh, this is the B-I-E-R beer, the, what the dead body was being carried on. Touches it, and he says, now by this time, when he says, get up, to the dead body, we've all got our cell phones out, and I mean, there's videos going on all over the place. What craziness is about to happen? And the guy gets up. The crowd reacts, and, and I have it on the screen for you. Fear sees them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And here's the phrase. Here's what the crowd said just happened. God has visited us. It's the same word as James 1.27. God has visited us. I thought then it might be profitable for us to look at what Jesus did if we're in fact interested in obeying James 1.27 from the perspective of what does it mean to visit orphans and widows? Obviously, it doesn't mean finding orphans and widows, knocking on their door and having tea with them. It has to mean more than that kind of visit. And Jesus helps us see exactly what kind of visit, uh, at least I think a kind of visiting that we can comprehend, we can grab a hold of as we look uh, at Luke chapter 7. So there's three components of visiting that I want to draw your attention. First of all, Jesus saw. Jesus was aware. Two times in that narrative, Luke makes sure that we understand that Jesus sees the dead man and then he sees, he looks at the woman, then he's moved with compassion. So what does seeing involve? Let me just quickly share with you what I think are two components of seeing that you and I struggle with, all right? Maybe we could call these blinders. Maybe we could just call them the challenges that face us when we see or what we don't see. In other words, think with me right now. Uh, you foster families, it's a, it's a no-brainer for you, but if you're not involved in fostering at this point or not involved, um, can you imagine right now, get it in your head, who's the closest person to you who is an orphan or a vulnerable child? Now, we can carry the list on. God does, whether it's the alien or the stranger or the sojourner or the widow. Or, there's all kinds of disenfranchised people. But tonight we're just talking about children. The orphan and vulnerable children. Can you, do you know one? Do you know a child right now? Do you know their name? Do you know what their situation is? Think of them. Are you aware? Where do they live? What are they like? I think there's a couple problems that we have, and I think it's just basic orphanology, if we could just call it that, that we don't see, and especially sometimes churches 
And people like us aren't as quick to see as we should be. Two issues with it. One, proximity. In other words, you have to be close to see something, right? It's so easy for me, and it, I think it's easy for you. In, in the model that Jesus gives us, when, this, when the crowd says, man, we just got visited, Jesus walked right up close, close enough, he saw, he kept going. He saw again. He got closer till he could touch. Proximity, we build our lives in so many ways to avoid or to stay away from the very kind of people that God has called us to serve. So we pick neighborhoods, we build fences, we have jobs, we buy things, we drive in such a way. Our lifestyle in many ways is to separate us, right, from the vulnerable, from the disenfranchised. Proximity is huge. I want to encourage you tonight, in whatever way you can, to begin to break down the barriers, that God would help you see the barriers between you. For example, in Exodus chapter 1 and 2, there are three stories, and I want to do, the, I'm going to do this really quickly, but there are three stories that start the book of Exodus, and if we agree that the book of Exodus is about redemption, it's really interesting that God start. These are all Sunday school stories that, that uh, I'm looking around to see if there'd even be anybody old enough to remember what flannel graph was, but... The first story is the Hebrew midwives. The second story is a man, a Levite and his wife who are pregnant. And the third story is Moses kills an Egyptian. They're all just piled right there. Now, the, 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 what you have to understand about it, Exodus 1 and 2 is that there's a law. Remember the law? Baby boys are going to die. Baby boys are against the law. They must die. So the Hebrew midwives love God. They're, they're, they're delivering a baby. The, the, the woman is there. Can you imagine the tension inside of them? as, oh, no, it's a boy. And in their hands is a boy. That's proximity, <laughs> right? I mean, you got to make a decision. What are you going to do when you're that close? There's a ton of difference between having the baby boy in your hand as a Hebrew midwife in Exodus 1 and that group of whoever were, that we're meeting about a half a mile down the road with picket signs saying, we need to get this law changed. There's a proximity issue. I don't know what it is with you that separates you. Maybe you just need to become closer friends with the people who are up front so that you can begin to just taste and see and hear and feel. The other issue of, of, of seeing or awareness is complexity. I get discouraged at the complexity of these issues. My wife and I about, oh, in, the, in this past year, we took training to become CASA workers or GALs. Any CASAs or GALs? One. Okay. CASA is court-appointed special advocate. GALs is guardian ad litem. When a child comes into the system, there is the, the biological family has the defense attorney. They are appointed an attorney, literally. They are appointed an attorney. The, the child services department has an attorney, a prosecuting attorney. Then there's a judge. And that child then is represented by this attorney and by this attorney, by the, by the biologicals and by the ch uh, welfare system, child services system. 
ACASA, Court Appointed Special Advocate, GAL, uh, goes through training. We took four Saturdays of training, and a judge has appointed us. I have a letter that I can walk into a school, a jail, uh, any place, really, a therapist, a medical office, and I can find out about the children who are appointed to me. I can find out anything about them that I want to. I'm a volunteer, and I represent the best interests of the child to the judge. I write a written report that the judge reads when this child comes for their adjudication. That's a CASA. That's a JAL. I've been, a, I've been assigned Sophia. She was my first case. She's nine months old. She's now, her birthday was this month. She's about, yeah, she's walking. Her mom and dad, uh, they, they thought it was wise to do drugs, sell drugs, have drug parties with Sophia in her little high chair eating supper. And the court system didn't think that was a good idea, so they took Sophia. And Sophia now is in a, in, in a process of adjudication. She's staying with her maternal aunt. I don't understand parents like that. I don't understand the complexities of opioid addiction. I don't understand the, 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 the poverty cycle of how poverty produces poverty and how bad decisions produce bad decisions. I, I have grown up in a system where stop it usually works, right? And it just doesn't in our world, folks. And sometimes just because of the complexity, we get so weary and we get so frustrated and we think, why don't you just believe in Jesus? And we don't have any other answers than that. And so we back away and we allow all of these kinds of walls to be built between us and the very kind of people that we are, <laughs> if, if we were transparent, and the very kind of people that need the Lord. Not only did Jesus see, but Jesus felt, and this whole issue of compassion, it, it, compassion has such a shelf life, doesn't it? Have you experienced that where you can feel so intensely about something and then after a TV show or a football game or something, man, it is, ab where did that go? Compassion is something that we, we, as, a, we as the followers of Christ need to, need to follow. Jesus walks up, he touches, and then he says, don't cry. He didn't, I don't understand that. I, don't, I, I, I think about it, I meditate on it, but out of the heart of the Son of God, he looks at this woman with the dead boy, and, she, and, and one of the, of all the things he could have said, what, what is, apparently caught his attention was that she was crying, and it bothered him. In the prophet Hosea, there is a, there is a, a, a rift that God is on in talking to his children uh, about the coming judgment. Why don't you guys listen? Why don't you guys obey? Why don't you guys follow me? And then all of a sudden there's a break, and God himself is quoted as saying, I look at you, and my heart recoils within me. I need to just call a timeout and ask a question. This, this countdown is how long I have. I can go to zero, or do I need to go to five? Zero. Oh, thank you. I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't know that. Are we cool? I'm going till 6.10? I'm following that one, not the other one. Okay, thank you. I'm sorry. I, I should have known that. The heart of God says, God says himself, my heart recoils within me. 
Can you remember the last time that, that you saw, observed something so sad that it was like something sprung in here? With me, it was my granddaughter, uh, who, uh, not quite three years old, around three years old, as, as my daughter-in-law is telling Sue and I about how she burned her hand in boiling water. And I had to walk away. Because in here, in here, it was just going, bomb, bomb, bomb. I don't want to hear anymore. I don't want to hear about how they had to take the skin off. I, I can't do it. Philippians 2, remember Philippians 2? If you find, since there is any compassion in Christ, ultimately you get to the part where it says, then treat other people as more important than you. We try to moralize by being nice to people, but we can't really have compassion on them unless we have been receiving compassion and understanding the incredible mercies of God. You, you understand tonight? That if you're running from God, you're fighting with God, you're having a struggle right now just saying, okay, God, I give in. Do you understand that it's, he's up there and he's upset? That's true. But you understand also that his heart is going boing, that it hurts, that he feels for you and me as his children who turn our backs on him or go our own way. Compassion. So, so we... We, we want to raise awareness, like Jesus, that's visiting. We want to stimulate compassion, that's visiting. And then just thirdly, quickly, I'm pressing the button. I need the next one if someone could help me back there. Thank you. Go, ooh, went too far. Action, Jesus did. He sees, he walks up, he feels, and then he acted. Obviously, encouraging, obedient action. Jesus is known by his actions. Luke 7, back down toward the end of the whole chapter, all of the narratives of Luke 7 are put together to answer one question. Who is this guy? And the answer is, well, he heals the sick from a distance. He raises the dead. John the Baptist speaks really well of him, and then he sits down with a sinful woman. How do you know who he is? Well, that's Jesus. That's who he is. He raises, he saves, he rescues, he delivers, he loves people in deed and in truth. There is a myth about orphan care. And it is this, that the only options to be involved in orphan care are fostering or adopting. Do you understand the army of people that are necessary to support adoptive and foster families? Maybe you do, because maybe you're, as a church you're doing that. I get into a lot of churches. One of the things that happens is after the service, adoptive or foster families will come up to me, they'll talk, and I've learned to ask a question. The question I ask is, do you think that your leadership and your church family understand and support what you do? And typically the answers are these, because people are nice. You, you all are really nice. They look at me and say, oh, we have a wonderful pastor, and we have a wonderful staff, and we have a wonderful church. But I, no. No, <laughs> no, they don't. They get more excited about children's ministries and Awana and Sunday school than they do about us trying to rescue children, to be honest with you. I said, well, thank you. Thank you for telling me that truth. Because when you take on children who have already experienced the worst that the world has to offer, 
and you bring them into your home, especially into a home where you have bi- you're, you're bringing along your biological children as well, then you add to that any of you who are fostering or adopting, and you, you are the specialist. You've got something wrong up here because you want to adopt special needs children. I mean, pain isn't enough for you. You're going for triple. You want to step in where nobody else dares step in. And you're taking that child that has special physical needs, emotional needs, whatever. Thank you. But church, visit. And one of the ways you can visit is to find out that there are dozens of ways for you to be an encouragement and a help to the ones that God, I love the way Pastor put it, the one that God does call into fostering and adopting. A couple uh, applications. Just a review. I think that what visit means is that you see and then you begin to get involved in supporting the ones who are close by you, whether they're orphans and vulnerable children or their parents and families that are involved. And then break down the distance. Ask God to help you see orphan, vulnerable children around you and broken families around you, almost as if they've got this special glow. It'll be weird, I know. I mean, you're walking down the hallway at work or you're going through your neighborhood and all of a sudden you see these kids with a glow around them. But that's what, God, point them out to me. Help, them, help me to see. Help me to become aware. And then I just encourage you to do something. Psalm 10 is, a, uh, is an incredible psalm. It talks about the fatherless. And I, uh, let me just read a couple of verses. I, uh, I, is it appropriate for me to close in prayer or at least for me to pray right now? Let me pray it then. You have Psalm 10 close by. If you don't, then just listen. It, it's a prayer that I want to encourage you to pray. At least give you permission that when you see the complexities and the hurt and the pain and the depth of what's going on in some of these families and kids' lives, let me lead you in prayer. The psalmist teaches us to pray this way. Lord, when we find out more and more and more about how parents neglect and abuse children, we find out that we really don't have any answers for the drug problem in our country, We find out that that there are these cycles that go on in people's lives, our own included. Lord, why do you stand far away? Why do you seem to hide yourself in times of trouble? Why do wicked people, why why do men who abuse their children, why do drug dealers who hang out around schools, why do they seem to prosper? Why don't they get caught? Why does it happen? Father, as we meditate on it, as we think about it, we might even come to the point where we're, we want to give up. We've lost hope. But Father, your word tells us that we can come to you, and so we pray, arise. Oh God, wake up. Lift up your hand. Don't forget the afflicted. God, why does the wicked renounce you And why do they say in their heart, you'll not call them to account? But Father, we know, we know it by faith. We know it because we've been taught. We know it because we're encouraged in your word and by your spirit and by your people. We know you see. 
You know mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. You will judge. And right now when the helpless cry out to you, that that 12-year-old, that 6-year-old, they're broken and they cry out, oh God, you hear them. And you have been the helper of the fatherless. And so Father, raise up your church. Give your church continued encouragement. And we ask with one voice, that you would break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Oh God, protect these children. Call your church to be those who step in this gap and be your voice and your heart and your hands for these children. And we ask that you would give us the faith to believe that you are taking care of the things that we can't and you're going to give us the strength to do what you call us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.